0: just because access is increasing, that access comes with great responsibility and the economics just don't really make sense if you're a passive investor to do the level of due diligence that it's prudent to do. So as an example, if you're investing $50,000, you can't fly around the country, run criminal checks, background checks, talk to the sponsors, talk to all the CPAs they work with, talk to their attorney, talk to their insurer, talk to their contractor, see their properties in multiple states, randomly show up to their properties. These are all things that I think any investor, if they thought about it, would think that that was a good thing to do. But if you all that you're going to really eat into your return. So I found an opportunity to found a company to act as an intermediary to vet opportunities on behalf of passive investors and really not even take economics out of doing so.
1: Welcome to the Prosperity Through Multifamily Real Estate Investing Podcast brought to you by Blue Oak Capital. If you're looking to take your real estate investing to the next level and learn how you can achieve your financial success by investing in multifamily real estate, then this show is for you. Our mission is to help you improve your education and learn proven strategies from industry leaders to help you master multifamily investing. Now here's your hosts, Cody Laughlin, John Beatty, and Brian Alfaro.
2: What's up guys, Real Estate Cody here, inviting you to join our Preferred Investors Club. Now, what is the Preferred Investors Club? That is an exclusive list of investors that get early priority access to all of our investment offerings before it goes out to our general database. Now, why is that important? I'll tell you because our last two investment offerings oversubscribed by several million dollars each, and each had a waiting list. So if you wanna get in and you wanna make sure that you don't miss out on any of the offerings that we're putting out there, make sure to get on this list. So if you want early access, get in now. Go to www.blueoakinvest.com forward slash investor form. Drop your contact information in there so we can get you added onto that list so you can get your priority access. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Now to the show. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the Prosperity Through Multifamily Real Estate Investing Podcast. I am your host, Real Estate Cody, and I'm flying solo today. Mr. Brian Alfaro could not be with us today, so please make sure for all of our avid listeners, give him a hard time next time he's back on the show. He'll be glad to hear that uh, he's been missed. But uh, I am extremely, extremely excited for today's very special guest. This is somebody who I have one of the highest regards for in the industry, somebody I've really looked up to and admired over the last several years. And uh, I couldn't be more and more excited to have him on the show. I think it's taken me almost about two years to get you on here. So I'm really excited. So for those of you who are wondering who I'm talking about, I am talking about the one and only Hunter Thompson, founder and CEO of Mr. ASIM Capital. And for those of you who don't know Hunter, number one, you're probably living under a rock. But for those of you who want to learn more, Hunter is a full time real estate investor, founder of ASIM Capital. And since founding ASIM, Hunter has helped over 400 retail investors acquire over $150 million of mobile home parks, self storage, retail office, ATM machines and cryptocurrency assets. So Hunter is also the host of the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast, amazing podcast, by the way, which has received over 1 million downloads. Man, hashtag goals for me, Hunter, I'll tell you. He's also the writer of the Raising Capital for Real Estate book, amazing book, which has hit number one on Amazon in real estate sales and selling. So with that, Hunter, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thanks a lot, Honor to be on.
2: Man, it is an honor to have you here. Like I said, I'm I'm super excited. I was telling you this before the show. I've got butterflies in my stomach just because I do have a tremendous respect for you and what you've been able to accomplish in your business. And a little quick backstory on how I discovered you in 2019. I was attempting my first capital raise. I was having a hard time. I struggled. And all of a sudden, I hear you on a podcast and I hear your story. And it's like, oh my God, this guy is speaking to me. He's pulling my heartstrings. And ever since then, I've been a huge fan. So, uh, really excited to have you here. So, with that, man, tell the listeners a little bit more about you and your background and how you got started.
0: Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think, man, the, the way I got started in the real estate was that I was in college during the Great Recession, and so I saw a great opportunity where I wasn't really negatively impacted by the Great Recession financially, but I saw, you know, the, the typical saying, you know, buy when blows in the streets, and so I just knew if I was willing to go right when people are looking left it was probably going to turn out well for me. And so as soon as I graduated college, I started studying real estate. At the time, there weren't all these cool podcasts now that you've done such a good job growing, but there were meetup groups. And so I started going to meetup groups. I would go to three to four to five per week and in Los Angeles traffic, just trying to figure out what is my investment thesis? Who are my mentors going to be, et cetera? And eventually, you know, I met someone. Uh, I should say it this way there were so many people focusing on fix and flipping, buying at the time, foreclosures, short sales, these types of things. And it didn't really resonate with me. I wasn't able to get excited about the dollar amounts. I felt like dealing with contractors, for example, wasn't in my skill set. And I was just like, man, where is like, where are the real players in this space? And how can I get to them as quickly as possible? And so at the time, I wasn't really exposed to this concept of passive investing, which is now really popularized. And I've tried to do my best to popularize it. But basically, I met someone that said, look, rather than try to fix and flip or try to buy a $50 million property, there's this another opportunity where people that are buying 10, 15, $20 million assets, they usually don't raise all the money from their own capital. They usually allow LP investors, which is a new concept to me, to invest in their deals. And that's how these $20, $50 million properties are purchased by this concept of LP, limited partner investors, where the partners just put up the money and don't really involve themselves in the day-to-day operations. And so the cool thing about this, and obviously this is something that a lot of your audience is already familiar with, but at the time, this was revolutionary, 2010, 2011. This is before the JOBS Act. Like You couldn't even talk about real estate deals on the internet. That's how dinosaur-like the industry was just a decade ago. And so when I started to realize the structure of this, what the implications were, I could invest money with an operator that stood to gain millions of dollars a savvy, sophisticated person that was very good at what they did, and they only focused on one particular niche. And then me as a passive investor, I could rely on their infrastructure, their know-how, their market advantage, their risk profile, their geographic location, and I could do this across multiple different operators. And so that was kind of how it got my attention. And it wasn't really until 2010 that I was like, okay, now I need to dedicate my life to this. So I can go into that whole story, but that's how I got introduced to real estate.
2: Yeah, I think I think to your point, I think a lot of people—that's how they are innately introduced to real estate, you know, through like you said, the, the various models, fix and flip, blah blah blah. And you know, it sounds enticing and it sounds intriguing until you really get into it and you really figure out, like, you know, it's a grind, it's a tough business, and if you don't have the skill set and leverage to be able to utilize other people's money and other people's skill sets, that's where a lot of people get weeded out. So you started out. I think if I'm not mistaken, you had a sales background prior to coming into real estate. You really leveraged that. You found this niche in the ability to engage with people, interact with people, attract people to raise capital. But it started off as a little bit of rocky road, right? I mean, tell us a little bit about that story, and then really what happened after that that propelled you to where you are today.
0: Cool. Before I go there, I've got to talk about like this kind of of this last straw moment because before I raised any money. I was 100% committed as a passive investor, right? Like I had built up my background. So what happened was I started taking money out of the stock market in 2008, nine, and 10. And then in 2010, something happened that I don't think gets talked about enough, which is the European debt crisis. That for me was the moment where I was thinking, okay, this whole system is intertwined. If my Apple stock, and like the bond market, for example, is completely tied to something as obscure as the spread between the two-year and the ten-year of the German bond yields. And if everyone's focusing now, if oh, if the bond yield hits seven percent, the whole world economy is going to collapse. Which was the case. You know, I would wake up like six a.m. market timing and see that the Dow Jones was down seven hundred points because everyone was focused on the German bond yields. And I was like, this is a total casino. And I don't know why no one talks about that. But for me, like as a US-based investor who had never heard anything about like European stock markets, for example, I realized I've got to move every bit of money out of this casino and into passive syndications that produce predictable cash flow. And that meant my money, that meant my family's money, that meant any family's money that I could get in touch with. And so I became like morally obligated to, to make that message be known. And so, to your point, after about four years of investing personally and kind of pulling friends and family together, you know, just telling people about good investment opportunities, I decided to create my first fund. And it was for the mobile home park business. And so, I had been investing for years, had success, and investing with partners that had $100 million or more under their management. And at the time, mobile home parks were trading at 10% cap rates. I'll say that again. You could buy a property in cash, implement no value add. At all, and it would produce a 10% cash flow if you did nothing. And so I thought this is a total no brainer. Why isn't everyone shouting about this on top of the rooftops? I've got to take advantage of this. Either I'm wrong and this is all like a Ponzi scheme, or I'm right and this is not going to last, you know? And ended up being that I was. <laughs> correct it didn't last but i i ended up pulling invest i ended up creating an llc and i wanted to pull investors together to invest into someone else's deal which is a concept called a fund of funds which i didn't really know at the time but that's what i wanted to do because i didn't want to implement the business plan i just knew someone that was really good at it and so i had this idea to have a luncheon at a country club i rented out some Place. I did some mailers. I did some phone calls. I tried to get as many people there as possible. There's only room for 20 people, but 30 accredited investors showed up with a net worth of $30 million. And I gave this presentation of a lifetime that I give today. And at the end of the presentation, I handed out a piece of paper to everybody and said, you know, write the number that you're interested in investing. I had committed the sponsor that I was going to raise at least half a million dollars. And at the end of the day, they folded up the papers, they gave it back to me. And I counted everything up, and no one had said they would vest anything. It was a zero. It was a goose egg. And like, I was blindsided by this. I was emotionally devastated. I was surprised. I was embarrassed. And that kind of sent me down this path to later create ASIM Capital. And you know, we just raised five million dollars in five days. I think we've raised about fifty-five or sixty million dollars now to date. So a lot of work in between that then and now for sure.
2: Just I, I love, again, I love that story because it's so personal to me because I had a similar experience on my first capital raise. And I think a lot of people that may be tuning into this episode probably have had a similar experience. I would argue most capital raisers probably experienced that on their first raise. And it's, it's a devastating experience, right? It's it's really soul crushing in the moment, but you learn so much about yourself and you learn how to fail forward going through that experience. And like you said, you've raised $60 million plus. And I've, I've heard you on your previous funds. I mean, you're raising. Tens of millions of dollars in such a short period of time. And so what was the change? What did you discover after going through that experience that helped you really come up with ASIM capital and the ability to develop the skill set you need to go out and raise, like you said, tens of millions of dollars now?
0: What was that? What was that change? Well, from my perspective, there's just a huge need. I just needed to learn how to capitalize on it. So, like, let me just break down. How we're positioned in the marketplace, because I think this is really important. I think I recognized early on that the passive approach to investing was such a powerful vehicle. And especially with the Jobs Act, which was ratified in 2012 and then kind of enacted in 2013, I felt like there was going to be a massive tsunami of interest into the world of quote, crowdfunded real estate or syndicated real estate, especially as people started to become accredited investors who were millennials, people that were accustomed to developing relationships over the internet. And they felt comfortable developing those relationships and then sending half a million dollars, $250,000 investment amounts without actually meeting them in person. And this was revolutionary at the time, I can tell you, because I was in the industry prior to that change. And so really what I felt was, look, there's this tsunami of interest coming, but Just because access is increasing, anyone now knows they can Google good real estate deals and find a bunch of syndications, which wasn't the case a while back. That access comes with great responsibility and the economics just don't really make sense if you're a passive investor to do the level of due diligence that it's prudent to do. So as an example, if you're investing $50,000, you can't fly around the country, run criminal checks, background checks, talk to the sponsors, talk to all the CPAs they work with, talk to their attorney, talk to their insurer, talk to their contractor, see their properties in multiple states, randomly show up to their properties. These are all things that I think any investor, if they thought about it, would think that that was a good thing to do. But if you do all that you're going to really eat into your return so i found an opportunity to found a company to act as an intermediary to vet opportunities on behalf of passive investors and really not even take economics out of doing so so really what we do is we go to sponsors and we say look this is what i want to do at least back in the day and this is what i've been able to do but i would go to sponsors and say instead of writing one check For $50,000, would we be able to get better economics from you, the sponsor, if we could come up with 1 million, 2 million in the beginning? And now it's, you know, 10 million, 20 million now. And of course, they're willing to part with those economics. And then I would go to investors and say, look, I found an excellent opportunity. I've been investing in the sponsor for the last two years, and I'm going to be one of the largest investors in the opportunity. Almost all of my compensation is dependent on you getting a return of capital, a preferred return. Here's the deal. And so that's what we've been able to do. But the reason it's worked is that as the market has matured, as passive investors have started to recognize, it would be really nice if I could have... You know, a second set of eyes on here. That's all they do professionally. And then I could have like a curated list of investment opportunities by someone who's investing very significantly. That was an opportunity to create a product like that that just simply didn't exist. And still to this day, it's, I mean, still not super popular because you have the crowdfunding world, which is basically paid based on fees how much money can they raise? And then you have the world of sponsors, which they are super focused on one niche, meaning that all they do is sell storage in the East coast of Florida. And that's fine. And that's good. But when there's a hurricane, your whole net worth is tied up into the East coast of Florida. So we're kind of positioned in the middle. I can be happy to talk about more about the capital raising side of things, but that was the product that I felt, man, this is such an opportunity that isn't really being served. Yeah.
2: And you've done such a great job with that, right? I mean, because you really have taken that, that, need and really turned it into not only a very lucrative business for yourself but really you you've created a opportunity for you know, becoming the industry expert, and I think that's something that you're well recognized in the industry for, is just your expertise in vetting sponsors, vetting opportunities, vetting verticals that will really best suit investor appetite right now. So, I want to kind of talk a little bit about that if we can, and, and really looking at where Asim Capital is now. You're you have funds that are placed in multiple different verticals. What's the driving thesis behind the diversification in, in your portfolio and the type of opportunities that you're looking to place your your investor capital in?
0: So. As I kind of outlined, my thesis was always kind of formed coming out of the Great Recession. So I got the benefit of not being deeply impacted by the Great Recession, but being able to see what it would have been like if I was. So when I started going to networking events in real estate, everyone's, they had almost all lost their shirt. Even if you really knew what you're doing, 2008 was a massive aberration, but there were a couple of people that were able to weather the storm. And the people that were able to do that were investing in cash flow focused, recession resistant vehicles, specifically mobile home parks, self storage, multifamily apartments, those types of things. Especially vehicles where the worse the economy does, the more demand there is for the product. I mean, the most clear example of this is the mobile home park business, right? The worse the economy does, the more demand there is for affordable housing, and especially in the you know five hundred dollar a month type of category. So. This is very true for self-storage as well. When people start to downsize, when people lose their job or have to change jobs, or they go through a divorce, or they have a kid move home from college unexpectedly, all these things are more common during recessions and all of these things create the demand for self-storage. So, I mean, that was really the general thesis. And I have like a very much a focus on economics. I think that we're all kind of playing in the world of economics, whether we want to admit it or not economics should be the lens through which you view the investment space. Because if it isn't, you can build 10 years, 20 years of wealth and then get annihilated without being, oh, where'd that come from? You know what I mean? And it's possible to understand these risks if we're willing to take the time and have conversations with economists to read economic data and to focus on trends. So what I felt basically was, I'm willing to give up some of the upside associated with some of the more cyclical assets Land entitlement, development, hotels, et cetera, in exchange for a slow and steady wins the race paradigm. And that thesis is really boring, right? So when COVID happens, everyone's like, well, what are you doing? I'm like, the same thing. Like, this is the reason. Because when COVID happens, the self storage assets that are like, you know, whatever, 30% of my portfolio are overperforming. The multifamily apartments, everyone froze and thought, what is about to happen? Ended up being that they were quite fine. So we just don't really change things a lot. I did recently launch a Bitcoin mining fund, which is interesting and kind of outside of our typical spectrum, but I think it's prudent to have some exposure to Bitcoin, generally speaking. And this kind of opportunity present itself.
2: It's funny you bring that up because I was actually listening to that exact podcast episode earlier today, learning more about this Bitcoin mining fund that you're putting out. So interesting there. But I, I want to use this topic of conversation to kind of segue into really your core focus now, as far as what you're educating your database on, which is the macroeconomic landscape and how that is impacting ASIM Capital and your investment decisions, because I, I absolutely agree with you. Everything that we do revolves around the macroeconomic landscape, right? And so our number one job as investors is to what? Is not to make a lot of money, which of course, that's what we want to do. But it's to really hedge against our downside risk. And, and you can't really do that if you don't really understand the powers that be that impact your investments, right? So I wanna kind of open that door if you can and talk to us about the macroeconomic landscape and what are the drivers that you're really looking at that are impacting your day-to-day and decision-making?
0: So number one I'm working on a project right now that I'm real excited. I asked offline if I could talk about it, so it's okay. It's a free summit, which is called the 100K to Invest Summit. If you go to 100K to Invest, so the number 100K, ktoinvestcom you can check it out. And the reason I felt motivated to do this is because of this exact topic. I have never heard so much chatter about the economy than I have right now. People are concerned about inflation risk. People are concerned about interest rates rising. People are concerned about the combination of low cap rates and rising interest rates. And like, how can this possibly go on? And especially some of these growth markets that have experienced 20% year-over-year growth. Like, certainly that's a bubble. What's about to happen? And I have had the opportunity on my show to interview some very high-level people. Now, when it comes to economists, they all disagree with each other, right? But I have been very compelled by a pretty bullish outlook right now in today's environment. We're recording this right now in 2022 in March. And I think especially for multifamily apartments, cell storage in particular, and especially kind of B-class apartments, we are in for a massive, massive ride. And it's already been a good ride. But here's the thing. In 2022, they, the Fed, confirmed a lot of our suspicions that anytime there's going to be a wrinkle in the market, or even not a wrinkle in the market, if they think there might be, they are going to smash the trillion dollar button. And that was what we thought the takeaway was in 2008, nine, and 10. And then it was reconfirmed in an even bigger way in 2020, when... The government basically shut down the economy and just smashed the button over and over again. The United States government printed $6 trillion in about two years. And this is really important, the other countries in the world printed an additional $4 trillion. So there's 10 trillion extra dollars that is actually acting as a tsunami slushing around the global economy, looking for yield in a high interest rate environment. You guys, what I'm outlining right now is an incredible opportunity for real estate investors from top to bottom. And I'll kind of explain this, okay? So imagine this massive tsunami heading for what is the most favorable risk-adjusted returns. That's what the tsunami is asking, this $10 trillion tsunami. Now, it's very difficult to place that kind of money in private deals, okay? So a lot of that trillion dollars is going to go into bonds. But the United States bonds are one of the very few... Bonds in the industrialized world that produce positive returns, positive yields. I know that sounds crazy, but think about the ECB, the Bank of Japan, all of them have either negative or basically negative rates. And somehow, based on the fact, it's very difficult to kind of understand, but still, US bonds are net positive. So that is taking place. But once You start to realize that the bonds and the yield of those bonds are inversely correlated the more demand there is for those bonds the return goes down and down and down and then united states real estate is sitting there and it has always been one of the most favorable risk adjusted returns but now it becomes a demand why because investors and bond managers and hedge funds want to keep up with inflation So that's the first piece of this, okay? The second piece of this is what inflation means for real estate investors. Because as a consumer, inflation sucks. I feel for you if you are on fixed income in particular and you're having problems paying for gas right now or problems paying for food. I mean, this is a real situation. And there's something called the misery index. And it's really, really, you know, it's like reaching all time highs right now. But this is where I'm switching to my voice as a real estate investor fine, it's going to be miserable, but it is going to be the case. And why is it? Because there's an incredible supply and demand imbalance of affordable housing and risk-adjusted returns. So when we look at inflation, as real estate investors, most of us invest in asset classes that don't have a one-to-one ratio of expense ratio of income to expenses. Right. So in a multifamily apartment, you're buying 1984 properties, for example. You may have a 42% expense ratio, meaning that only 42% of your gross income is going to go to pay off expenses. So when inflation is raising rents by, let's say, 6% per year, and inflation is also raising your expenses by 6% per year, because it is not a one-to-one ratio, you are a massive benefactor of inflation. Does that make sense so far?
2: Absolutely. Because now I
0: have the kicker, The other piece of this is that inflation eats the balance owed of your debt in real dollars, meaning that if you borrow $10 million and inflation is eating it away at 7% per year, which is currently the rate, if you listen to the government data, which is probably likely understated, in 10 years, that 7% per year has eaten half of the balance owed of your debt. So every single year, you're raising rates at a rate that's higher then your, uh, your expenses are increasing on a proportional basis. They may be one-to-one, but the ratio of the two is not one-to-one. Your debt is being eaten down by inflation, and the rate at which you're borrowing the debt is negative, meaning that if you're borrowing money at 5% and inflation is at 7%, we currently have negative real rates. This, my friends, are some of the reasons that we are just so excited about this opportunity and if you think it's competitive now just wait. If you think cap rates are low now, just wait. The people that are going to really be the sore losers of this are those that are sitting on the sidelines waiting for some 20% correction to come when it is not coming.
2: You just dropped a lot of nuggets there. A lot of people are going to listen to this and they're going to they're kind of mind blown right now because it's it's a granular insight into the underlying fundamentals of what we're seeing that's fueling the, the competitiveness that in the marketplace. But, you know, you have a lot of people that are tuning in that are also thinking, well, look, we have a flattened, almost flattened yield curve. In some respect, I think the five and seven year is actually inverted. Now it's above the 10 year. You've got lagging wages that are keeping up with the rate of inflation, right? You have those challenges. And then you now you have this quantitative tightening cycle that we're going into. And the Fed is trying to reduce their balance sheet. How do all of those factors play into what you just mentioned?
0: Yeah, good question. So a couple of things, I just got to be open about something real quick to be transparent. So about almost two years, not exactly two years, but almost two years ago, I was in a debate at the Best Ever Real Estate Conference with some people that are far more qualified than myself, but I find myself on these stages quite frequently. (laughs) And so I just kind of take the opportunity to listen to what other people have to say. The debate topic was, will interest rates be lower over the next two years? And I was on the side that they would be lower. And if you look at the chart, the claim that I basically made in a bunch of different ways, including you know making jokes and mocking my opponents, was that over the last 40 years, people have been asking that same question. And the people that have been investing based on that thesis that interest rates are going to rise have lost in a big way, whether it be sitting on the sidelines or only taking fixed rate debt, you know, et cetera, et cetera, I can go on. It does look, it's only been about a year and a half, but it does look like... It could be the case that I was wrong, that that interest rates might be higher at the exact moment in exactly two years, whatever, but the trend is your friend. So I don't see the Fed getting out of the current situation that they're in by raising rates. I mean, if you look at the global picture, because this is now a global economy more so than it has ever been in the past, if you look at the global picture, you'll see that all of these industrialized countries that have negative bonds, the United States is going to go that direction over an infinite time period, right? Meaning that that's not really helpful as an investor, but I think a lot of people probably agree. Some may not, but I mean, I think I can convince you in 15 minutes. Over an infinite time period, I think rates go negative. So if that's the trend, quantitative tightening, which has been tried before 2018, for example, they end up reversing these measures the moment that someone sneezes. And how could they not? That's the way that the political structure works. Who wants to be Volcker and smash the 18% interest rate button and smash us all into a massive recession. The Fed and the political realm, now like even saying that out loud as if those two things are separate in today's climate is a joke. At the time, decades ago, there was really at least Many people believe there was a separation between these two entities. Now we all understand the Fed is highly politicized. In today's environment, it's just very difficult for me to imagine a situation where someone... Imagine a politician going, yep, we know we're going to make this happen. We know there's going to be a depression or a recession. And please vote for me in three years, okay? Can anyone imagine that happening right now? So I just don't see it.
2: Yeah, I heard on a podcast uh, yesterday, and somebody brought the great point. You know, prior to the Great Recession, the Fed really didn't have a lot of influence or control per se on how do we attack certain economic cycles or whatnot. But after that, and having the Fed have to step in and react in the way that they did, the government really said, "Oh, hey, we're just going to turf this to the Fed, let them deal with it, right?" And then that's exactly what we saw after the the post COVID crisis, right? So it's kind of interesting to see that dynamic play out, but. In regards to looking at the scenario that we're in now, you know, you have continued cap rate compression, and I think a lot of people are still scratching their heads going, man, how much further this can this go? And I've heard you on a, a separate debate about this exact topic as well. So both really good debates, by the way. What is your input on the current like, in-place climate we're in today, where we're having a rising interest rate environment, but we're still seeing cap rate compression? Why are we seeing that delta
0: between the two? So... A good friend of mine, Bob Frazier, who is a principal over at Aspen Funds, puts out some quarterly kind of updates. And him and I were actually debate partners at the recent best ever, where again, they put me against John Chang, which by the way, I got to say this like, John Chang is the VP over at Research of Marcus and Millichaps. They spend $5 million a year on literally data and analytics. And I am just some loser with a microphone. (laughs) And I'm like lucky enough to be able to invite guys like John Chang on my podcast. However, Everyone there, the debate for this year was, will 2022 be the biggest buy year of the economic cycle? And they always make these kind of things a little bit vague. So there's there's room for debate. Now, during the debate, it came out that, interestingly enough, John Chang, who focuses on transactions at Marcus and Millichap, was saying, "There's there's no way there can be more transactions than there was in 2021. And I actually agree with that point. The argument I was trying to make was that in 2022, some of the best risk-adjusted returns will be produced. It's the biggest buy year for someone like myself, saying, "Holy crowd! Look, look at all this opportunity!" And we have to be really good at sniping the great deals because there's going to be so few of them. Anyway, it's that's the whole point of a debate. But I say this because Bob Fraser was really good at bringing up some data that I want to kind of share with you. Okay, when it comes to are we on the brink of some massive correction, especially when it comes to real estate, because as you probably know. Historically speaking, there can be a recession without there being a price correction in real estate. In fact, that is the norm. The aberration is a 2008 situation where real estate creates the recession to a large degree. That's not typical. Um, It wasn't typical for government entities or quasi government entities to own 30 or 40% of all the mortgages in the United States. That number used to be like 5 and 10%. So, like, that was a very unique situation. So, let's talk about this. Net worth, all time highs income, all-time highs. Those things right there are very telling, but it'd be one thing if those numbers were really high and then everyone was leveraged to the moon. You could see a situation where you're like, oh, my net worth is super high, but you're leveraged at 99 to one. Well, it's actually the opposite. Debt service on a household basis is at a 40-year low, 40-year low. So- A combination of all that data going back to and including the discussion around inflation, it just is a really, really favorable time to be a real estate investor. And there's a reason that there are trillions of dollars sitting on the sidelines waiting for these great opportunities. And if you're listening to the show, like this is one of the weird situations of the private real estate deal world is that you have this massive advantage over a trillion dollar bond manager, which is that you can take a sniper approach to your allocation. If you have a trillion dollars to allocate, you can't find some $20 million property in Texas. It's not even worth a plane ticket. So as a passive investor, you're investing $50,000, $100,000. You can participate in this space. Again, i try to think of things on a risk-adjusted basis. So that's where the opportunity is.
2: I, I completely agree with your thesis, Hunter, and I've, again, this has been one of the one of the reasons why I've been such a big fan of yours because I I do completely agree with the way that you've outlined and really the positive indicators that we have working with us as commercial real estate investors. But as you mentioned, we're, we're facing especially at the retail level, you're facing a lot of competition. You're against a lot of liquidity that's in the market that are chasing, like you said, these great risk-adjusted asset classes. So if I'm hearing you correctly, and which I subscribe to is right now is the prime time to buy. Buy as much as you can reasonably and you know, sophisticated, of course, but you know, buy, buy, buy. But what is your communication to your investors? Now, I know you're in a couple of different verticals, all producing a different type of yield. But we are seeing with the cap rate compression, with the aggressive purchasing that we're seeing in the marketplace, yields are tightening across all verticals, I I think. So what is your communication in, in managing the expectations for the retail investor right now that's looking to get these private placements but aren't really seeing the yields that they're accustomed to seeing?
0: Okay, really good question. And I'm, I'll address that exactly because I literally, the name of my podcast is the Cash Flow Connections podcast, right? And today's environment is like, well, where's the cash flow? So I totally get that. But before we get into that, let me just make a, a really important point. I do have a very bullish outlook, but we're very skeptical of who we invest with in the sense that there's probably six people on this planet that I want to invest with. And so we're probably going to work with five people this year because not all six will find deals that we like. Right, so that's how we look at Asian Capital. That's one piece of the value add that we have is curating that list of somewhere between five and ten operators that we're really, really excited to work with. And this is critical in today's environment. I'll now tell you why. With how competitive it is, you start to see really weird things take place. And if you are on the outside looking in, it may seem like no one should be doing deals. I'll give you an example. During our conference, one of our coaching clients said he put an offer on a property for sixty-five million and they lost the deal by a group that bought it for 85 million, okay? So if you hear a story like that, that might be the sign that you should not buy anything. And I'm, I get that. Now, I don't know the particular story with what happened, who the buyer was and, and all that stuff, but I'll tell you something else that may balance that out in your mind. Maybe it's the case that that buyer was totally insane. Maybe they should be paying $20 million than my person who I happen to know is pretty good at underwriting. But something similar happened where someone was talking to me about a deal they lost because the person they were bidding against put up a million dollars hard, non-refundable day one. And they were talking about how dumb they were. Who the heck was that? Well, I happen to work with a sponsor that does exactly that. And it's not because they're dumb. It's because they have incredible market-specific and property-specific advantage. I work with a sponsor that has $750 million of assets all within a 40-mile radius. That's all they know is this one particular market and they know everything about every property in that radius meaning they know the date it was made the vintage what the status of the chiller is if there is one the electrician what's the roof they know the roofer they know they know so much about these assets that the due diligence process is a joke they've been conducting due diligence on this property for years and making offer offers on this property to the buyer directly for years so the moment it is you know off-market transaction, they've got a massive leg up. They're willing to put up a million dollars, not of investor capital, of their own personal balance sheet, day one, non-refundable, because they know everything there is to know about the property. So that's the kind of investments that I'm willing to make in today's environment. When you say buy everything it's like, yeah, buy everything with an incredible strategic advantage, with an incredible market advantage, with economies of scale and all the materials you're going to need already in a warehouse nearby. Like, This is things that most people don't have, which is why we don't work with most people. Does that make sense before I move on to your discussion around yield? Absolutely. Great point. Cool. It's difficult to work with us because that's the kind of thing that we demand. Now, as far as the kind of cap rate environment, I remember a time where I used to say, I've got one metric, basically. And this is, look, we all try to be better investors every year. But at the time, I would say, if it doesn't produce a 10% cash flow year one, I'm out. How crazy is that? Now, that was possible when there was like seven and eight caps, but that's not possible today. And it's interesting because at the time, I thought, you know, if I can stick to this 10% cash flow year one, then I will never... Lose money on it. It's very difficult for me to think about losing money on a deal if it's going to cash flow at 10% year one, where there's a 400 basis point spread between the interest rate and the cap rate. And it's true. I probably wouldn't lose money on a deal. But if you try to do that now, you're going to lose a lot of money to sitting on the sidelines, inflation, and the opportunity cost. Yeah. So in the deals that we're looking at now, um, I'm not as cash flow focused, obviously, but we do currently only invest in deals. That are anticipated to cash flow within the first ninety days. So, what does that mean? Three percent, four percent, five percent. It's stabilized assets. You know, the lowest will go is usually seventy percent occupied in a typical popular asset class that are you know set to cash flow. So, um, hopefully, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. And I
2: appreciate that insight. And I think it's just, it's always good to have these conversations. And really, it's important for the passive investors in today's marketplace to really understand really what the market's giving us. It's just a very dynamic market cycle right now. But it's still a great opportunity, like you said, with the right sponsor, the right market, right fundamentals. But the opportunity cost by sitting on the sideline right now. Is going to cost you a lot more versus actually being active and just kind of adjusting expectations, not deviating, but just adjusting expectations a little bit to some degree. So Hunter, man, this has been great. I wish I could pick your brain for hours on end. I just love the opportunities to talk with you. I do want to give you another plug. I actually, for the first time, went to the IIREC conference back in January. My partner and Brian were there. And man, one of my favorite conferences I've ever been to, probably the best value-driven conferences that I've ever been to. It was really one of the few that I've actually sat there and just listened to the entire panels almost the entire day, just because it was such great content, great speakers. And so I really want to commend you on that. And I really want to make sure that our audience, if you have not attended this conference, you have to get out to this conference January every year over in California, right?
0: That's right. And we're thinking about making some changes. I don't know exactly. The future is uncertain, but don't worry. The content is going to be there. So you can sign up for our mailing list. You can go to cashflowconnections.com and get some of that. And a lot of those speakers that you like so much at IREC, they're going to be at the summit which is the 100K to invest summit. So if you like that stuff, you will be there.
2: Awesome, man. Awesome. Looking forward to that Uh, again next year. Really looking forward to the summit. I can't wait for that to come out. Uh, We will definitely be there. Always love the quality of content that you're putting out there in these forums, great stuff. So as we're wrapping up, Hunter, we do have a few more questions that we like to ask all of our guests and then we'll we'll call it a wrap. How about that? Let's do it. Awesome, man. So one thing that we love to learn from all of our guests is what do you like to do for your continued education to further
0: your own investing? Man, the number one thing for me for education is this, the podcast that I run, you know, that platform. And I'm very grateful for you as a listener and anyone that's listened to our show, and especially those that have left reviews. That has allowed me to reach out to IMF consultants, really great authors, people that I respect, you know, real estate celebrities, etc. cetera. And that's in preparation for those discussions and in the discussions themselves. That's how I kind of stay on top of it. I actually don't do a ton of data analytics myself my way of getting to the data is through those intermediaries, which are people that focus exclusively on data, such as guys like John Chang.
2: Yeah, I would agree with you, man. Being a podcaster, this has been our own internal education library. It's been awesome to have guys like you come on and just really just continue to, to learn from and whatnot. So it's, I, I would agree with that 100%. Looking back at your, your trajectory in your business, what was that one defining moment of time or one event that really changed the
0: course of your business? Oh, geez. Good question. I'll give you two. So we had a fund that, you know, the my capital raise kind of story went from like half a million dollars raised in one fund to 1 million to 2 million to 5 million to 15 million. And that 15 million I was like, "Dang, we have a real business now." Like 15 million dollars, you could buy 50 million dollars worth of real estate. And we did that in a year, and I was like, "Dude, that is really going to move the needle if we can continue to grow." And so that was be one of those moments. Another one though, is that we have a coaching component of our business called Raise Masters. And that also had a moment where we had a, a three-year goal of having 50 members. And I remember we hit 50 members, I think it was in two months. And I was like, okay, this is like piping hot fire. We need to like double down on this. So if you're interested in like the capital raising side of the business, I wrote a book where you can get like all my secrets. I put everything I know into my book. It's called Raising Capital for Real Estate. And then of course, if you want a little bit more in-depth over the shoulder look, all that stuff, you can go to Raising Capital for Real Estate forward slash never dash scramble where you have a webinar where I take you through like our whole process.
2: Yeah. Highly recommend it too, by the way. We're big followers of the book. We've adopted a lot of your principles into our own framework and, and highly recommend it. We name drop you all the time. So uh, cool, <laughs> but, um, Hunter, what would be one piece of advice that you would give to the listeners to help them grow their businesses?
0: I would basically stop listening to a lot of noise and try to find one person to go all in on. So there's all these podcasts out there, all these thought leaders, all these gurus, some are legit, some are not. I would find someone from a gut feel perspective that you align with, that you feel like you could have a beer with, if that's your thing, have a coffee with or whatever, and just go all in on them. Because I've had the opportunity to interview 400 people on my show. And there's people that are in hotels, people in development, people that would never invest in development, people that only invest in Florida. And the the tactics are not really relevant. What really matters is that all of them have a very specific niche and it allows them to move with confidence and so, what I don't want people to do is to hear all this noise and become a watered down version of everybody. So, like, I'm going to resonate with some people. Maybe Grant Cardone will resonate with another person. So, like, I don't want you guys to like try to just do some version of like all the thought leaders that are out there. Find someone that you're like, okay, this is my guy. Go and read their books, join their thing, pay whatever they have, invest with them. Like, it doesn't have to be me. I'm just saying, I know that that go all in mentality will shorten the time period so much. And I'm just very passionate about getting entrepreneurs the tools that they need as quickly as possible because I want to get, number one, money out of the stock market. Number two, when everyone becomes an entrepreneur, all of a sudden they become super libertarian-minded. All of a sudden they realize when the money's not coming out of their checks before they get the money, all of a sudden everyone's like me and wants to like make the government as small as possible or potentially eliminate it. So I'm a big fan of entrepreneurship.
2: Great advice, man. Great advice. All right,
0: Hunter, tell the listeners how they can learn more about you and ASIM Capital and connect with you. Cool. So one thing, and I always tell my my coaching clients this, one thing, only one way, go to 100k2invest.com. That's it. Keep it simple. That's it's a free summit. It's going to kick butt 22 niches we're going to talk about in today's economic climate. So go there. Love it. Can't wait. Hunter, want to thank you
2: again so much for tuning in with today. Great conversation. Definitely looking forward to the summit, man. Thank you. Thanks a
1: lot. Today's episode was proudly brought to you by Blue Oak Capital. To learn more about Blue Oak Capital and how you can partner with us, visit www.blueoakinvests.com. Tune in next time.